I always like getting ready for Christmas as early as possible. I think I've made that clear. I'll make it clear again. My son has a birthday, November 7th, November 8th. Christmas starts creeping out at our house. This is the lights in the darkness, the, the reminder of the light shining bright. Some of you, I'm sure, decorate for put up Christmas lights. You never thought, why do I put up Christmas lights? You just kind of do it to like make your neighbors feel like you're participating in something, right? But the reason we put up Christmas lights is a reminder that darkness is real and that light is real, that the world is dark and Christ has entered in by light to our darkness. And it's like this, this kind of pretty sober warning that, yeah, things are bad, and yeah, there is real hope in Christ. That's, that's why we put Christmas lights up, is it's Jesus is the light in the midst of our darkness. I think that so often in society, we can fall into one or two traps, either this kind of like terrible, pessimistic, everything's bad all the time, haven't you watched the news lately, or you fall into this like, everything's good and fine, there's no problems, and depending on personality or what happened to you this past week, you're probably in one of those two camps, but Christmas is this sober, realistic dose of everything is bad and hope is very real at the same time. Light in the darkness, Christmas lights on the house, and I'm teaching today on Jesus Christ, our advocate. The text that Derek just read talked about mediator, those words are related, advocate, Mediator. And you think about advocate means like most basically advocate to add vocals or add voice. We don't have voice to speak on behalf of, right? If you have someone who's advocating for you, they're speaking on your behalf or they're speaking about you on your behalf. Now, the, the words are inherently negative, mediator, advocate. Uh, if I came to you and said, hey, I heard someone talking about you this week. How many of you immediately positive feelings? But immediately negative feelings, right? Like, because we assume when people are talking about us, we assume it's gossip, it's negative, it's bad. But here we have Christ, our advocate, someone who's talking about us behind our back to the Father, but doing this positive gossip thing, speaking to us, speaking about us to the Father, that he's called our intercessor who lives to make intercession for us. He's advocating for us, doing this positive gossip thing to the Father. Like, it's weird to know that I have Jesus advocating for me all the time to the Father. And to to grasp that reality is difficult because I have to, at the one hand, admit I need an advocate, and on the other hand, admit I have one. That's Christmas, right? The darkness is real. The light is real. The, 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 the sin is real, the, the hope is real, and we, we live in this reality. But I, I want us to just wrestle with this fact of this, this duality that we needed a mediator. Similarly, if I went to, went, went to my wife today after church and said, hey, honey, I, uh, I hired us a mediator. She's immediately going to go like, whoa, hey, I thought things were fine. What's the deal here? What do you mean? It's like you're kind of admitting, hey, I tried to reconcile this. I tried to resolve this. It didn't work. I had to bring in a third party to like help what's going on between us. Like get, res- like you have to like actually admit there's this huge problem. And so I think there's this like difficulty for us to really during this Christmas season go, there is a huge problem. I need a mediator. I need an advocate. I can't do it on my own. And at the same time to cling to Christ, the one mediator between God and man, unashamedly hold on to those two things. And so I'm going to walk us through this text about um, how Paul is encouraging us and what, what having an advocate in Christ means for us and how we as Christians, or, or even those of you who hopefully will become Christians soon, can look at the Christmas season and see Christmas lights and go, light in the darkness. Uh, not naive optimism, not this kind of calculated, cynical pessimism, but like this real, hopeful, 
uh, engagement with the fact that light has come into our darkness. Let me pray, and then we're going to uh, talk through this text. Jesus, help us see you in this. I pray that you'll help us have our hearts warmed to, to your affection for us. And God, I ask that you will um, help us see ourselves in this text, and we'll feel uh, led by it. And let me pray. Amen. Amen. So the first thing when we have this idea of an advocate, when we have someone going to bat for us, uh, one of the questions we have to deal with is like, how does it make us feel about ourselves? How do, how do you Christians feel about yourselves? Some of us feel pretty high. Some of us feel pretty low. A lot of it's like this, this kind of self-hatred thing. And, and there's this, like this, this question we have to go like, how should I, we know how we ought to feel about God. We're supposed to love him. But how should I feel about myself? And there's this a culminating journey that Paul gives us a window into here that we read in 1 Timothy 1. It says, um, the Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, I remember first reading this text when I was like in high school and going, Paul doesn't actually think that, does he? No way Paul, the apostle, author of more than half of the New Testament, actually thinks he's the worst sinner of all time. He's got to be lying. Like there's, there's just some kind of false humility thing. You know, I remember like right when I was like freshly a pastor, my wife and I went to this thing for like pastors and their wives, and it was a pretty... Uh, it didn't make my wife super excited about being a pastor's wife because there's all this kind of like fake, shiny, cliche bombing everywhere. Like, oh, I'm just a huge, big sinner. <laughs> you know, and it's like, just like this hollow, fake humility of like, oh, you know, I struggle too. His mercy's new every morning. Like these cliches just kind of dropping on you like bombs from above. And you're just like, oh gosh, it just felt so fake and false. And like, I, like reading this, is Paul doing this false humility thing? I'm the biggest sinner of everybody. And you're like, no, not a chance, dude. Have you met me? Have you met, have you met my neighbor? Have you met my father? Have you met Hitler? I don't know. Like maybe Paul, maybe Paul can say this because like Hitler wasn't real yet. You know, like I don't, does Paul actually think this? And so it's tempting to go, what's it? But there's actually a window here that when you actually have an advocate in Jesus Christ, you no longer be, def you don't long, you no longer need to defend yourself because you believe that Christ defends you. So it gives you the resources you need to actually look long and hard at your own heart and see what's actually there. And we see this over the course of Paul's life. So Paul wrote 1 Timothy when he was about 60, 65. Five years before that, he wrote um, Ephesians. And five years before that, he wrote 1 Corinthians. And in all three of these books, he gives a commentary on how he thinks about himself and he's ranking himself as a sinner. So we see this in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 59. It says, I'm the least of the apostles. Like, okay, there's some like maybe, you know, it's like saying I'm the worst player on the all-star team. You know, it's like, oh, wow, so, so humble. You know, I'm the worst of all the all-stars. You know, like all the people who are doing their best better than anybody, I'm the worst of them. Like, oh, so Paul being the worst of the apostles is not going to make me feel better about me because I'm not at risk of being an apostle. But then like five years later, he says uh, this in Ephesians 3, I'm the very least of all the saints. So of all the Christians, of all the religious people, of all the people who say they love God, I'm the least of all those people. And you go, okay, is anybody willing to say they're the worst person in the room right now? Maybe more than a couple people would say that, but Paul is going, I'm least of all the saints. So you can see him doing this. But then in, uh, in First Timothy, you have him saying, even worse than that, I'm not just the worst of the apostles or least of the, sinner, of the saints. I'm actually the worst human that exists. I'm the chief of foremost of all sinners. You see this kind of downward trend. You're going, what does this mean? I, me I remember like feeling as a young Christian going like, I can't wait to sin less and less over the course of my life and feel better and better about myself and, and need less and less like grace because I'll like sin less and less. But what we're actually seeing in Paul is like the opposite taking place. Is Paul sinning more and more often or is he becoming more and more aware of his sin? 
I have a pretty good morning routine that I like. You know, my wife and I wake up really early, um, and she goes to the gym, and then I kind of basically work alone in the darkness of my house from 4.30 until about 6.30, and I have the brightness up on my computer screen all the way. That kind of helps me, you know, it gets all the melatonin out of the system, you know, like full brightness. I'm just staring at the computer, and I'll, I'll study or, or do emails or whatever it is, and it just kind of hitting my light with eyes. And then sometimes my daughter Olivia will wake up, like, Whenever, I mean, she always wakes up so far, you know, but I mean, sometimes she'll wake up um, early and so I'll make a bottle and go into her room, but the couch is still pitch black, especially now, and I've been staring in this bright light and so I kind of like bump into the wall, I'll drop the bottle, I'll bump the dresser, something will fall off and then it's kind of like a crisis, a little crisis happens because I've been staring at the light and the darkness looks extra dark. Um, but then I sit there and as I'm figuring the bottle and my eyes begin to adjust to the darkness and I can see in it. And it's the exact same way with Christ. That the more time we spend staring into the light, the more the darkness looks dark. And the more time we spend in the darkness, the less dark the darkness feels. Actually, kind of believing that you're better and better and better over time is usually evidence that we're spending a lot of time just staring into the darkness. But actually, when I am beholding and seeing and savoring and connecting with Jesus, my awareness of my own sinful heart goes up and up and up and therefore my sense of self apart from God goes down and down and down. That the mixed motives, the manipulation, the self-servingness, the doubt, the, the lack of faith, the sins that you expect to move on from but they keep lingering, the sense of disappointment in that chronic sinfulness. Like I can see, I've only been following Jesus like 15 years, but I can see how over the course of Paul's life, he goes from being like, yeah, I'm the chief of, I'm the worst of all the pastors. Yeah, I'm like the worst sinner at Gateway. I think I might actually be the most sinful person ever. This is someone who has more self-awareness than other people, not someone who's hating themselves and is just too negative or too hard on themselves. Like when you really stare into the light of Christ, you really then see your heart and the darkness is that much more clear. And when you have Christ as your advocate, you can do all that without becoming a self-loathing pity party. Because you're going, Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. So I don't feel threatened by becoming more aware of my sin. And I don't feel at risk of paying close attention to my own dispositions. And I don't feel like I'm on the verge of falling out of grace because I believe that grace is certain and purchased by Jesus' blood, but actually gives me license to do the honest self-reflection that gives me this like meaningful, enduring humility that is, I might be the worst sinner ever. Because here's the, the truth, is you have more capacity to be aware of and mindful of your sin than anybody else's. People ask me every now and then, like, oh, you have kids now? Does it make you worried then about the trajectory of our country? And like when I really read the scriptures, when I really look at even the data on what affects children, the biggest threat to my kids is me. Not what's happening in D.C., not what's happening in China, not what's happening in Russia, not what's happening in wherever. Like I, that I might be a hypocrite, 
that I might make shipwreck of my faith, that I might not show up and be connected and attentive to my children, that I might, uh, you know, pass on the faith uh, incorrectly. Like, I'm the biggest threat to my kids. And here's, I hope you all see this. You're the biggest threat to you. And you're the biggest threat to the people around you. And when I really see that and I really believe that and I really go like, that doesn't make me anxious because I have Christ as my advocate. But it ought to make me humble and slow and aware of these things. Those of you who've been following Jesus a long time, here's a question that you need to sit with and wrestle with. Is the longer you're with Christ, do you find yourself increasingly tempted to believe you're the foremost of all sinners? Or do you find yourself increasingly mad at the next generation, the kids these days, and those people, whoever those people are? Because I do think if we are believing the gospel that Paul believes, and if we are worshiping the God that Paul worships, we will over time increasingly have a lower view of ourself that will actually inhibit our judgmentalism of other people and will propel us towards a meaningful, prayerful dependence on our advocate, our mediator, Jesus Christ. That if we are buying into this kind of legalistic, holier-than-thou disposition, fake humility thing over time, we'll become increasingly mad at all those other people and more and more smug about our own content in our heart. We have an advocate, and so we can do the internal work we need to. One of the temptations when you have a good advocate is you can uh, be tempted to mail it in, right? So my dad was a driver's ed teacher for a while, and then he became my driver's ed teacher, and he uh, installed a brake on the passenger side of the car. So we had this Toyota RAV4 1997 and gas brake on this side and brake on this side. And uh, when you have a great big safety net, you can kind of just... You know, you, it's easy to, like, you're trying not to zone out, but you're also like a teenager trying to learn how to drive and you're driving. And then every now and then knowing that uh, my dad has a break and he can, he can bail me out if it goes up. But this, th- there's this temptation to, if you're like dependent or like recognizing that I don't need this, then you're like, I don't need this. T- don't pay attention. Uh, get your foot off the brake, dad. Let me get, I got it. I got this. But you actually don't have what it takes. And so you're grateful he has his foot on the brake. <laughs> Uh, this is one of the temptations to hear. It's like we might um, begin, temp- be- begin to be tempted to think, I don't need an advocate anymore. I needed one. He got me saved, but now I'm kind of good on my own. I don't need this kind of co-pilot with a break thing. I can run on my own. And this is one of the temptations we see here in this text in 1 Timothy 1. It says, this charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, accordance with what they've said about you, that you would wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And he names these people Hymenaeus and Alexander. This idea of waging the good warfare. Uh, what Paul says is the reason that Hymenaeus and Alexander have made shipwreck of their faith is that they rejected the fact that they ought to be waging warfare. Uh, Christmas is warfare. Christmas is like, I think my parents are pretty good parents, but one of their flaws was they let me watch Saving Private Ryan way too young as a kid. You know, it's like they're storming the beaches of Normandy. Just people are getting just hammered by uh, the opposition, but eventually they take 
the beach and they secure, it's called D-Day. And you know, it's a, the footing in World War II that eventually leads to the victory that Christmas, the birth of Jesus, the Virgin Mary giving birth to Christ was like the, the, the allied forces taking the beach in Normandy. It was establishing a beachhead, getting a foot in enemy territory that they then leveraged that this is the Christmas morning is warfare. And that's Revelation chapter 12. You have this picture of the dragon, the enemy, who's uh, meant to represent a Herod who's going to try to kill all the new babies because we don't want Jesus to grow up and become king. And so they're going to kill all these people and they get so mad and frustrated that they fail to kill off the baby Jesus that they go and wreak warfare. And so in Revelation chapter 12, it says the dragon became furious with the woman, that the woman is meant to be understood as both the church and also um, uh, Mary herself and make warfare against her offspring, those who keep the commandments. And so this idea that Satan is waging warfare against us, the offspring uh, who would trust in Christ to keep his commandments, that we are under attack. And what happens is these two guys stop believing they're under attack and it leads to them making shipwreck of their faith. When you're you know, taking driving class and learning defensive driving and you're mindful and vigilant, it's once you start driving mindlessly and non-vigilant, you get in accidents, that you wreck your car, I imagine it's the same if you're driving a ship, but I don't know how to do that. You know, making shipwreck, making of their faith. You kind of mail it in. I don't need an advocate anymore. I can speak for myself. I'm not under attack. I mean, you could listen. We could like make a list right now. A hundred people long. People have made shipwreck of their faith. Pastors, leaders, parents, friends who all of a sudden don't believe the gospel, who all of a sudden are having affairs, who all of a sudden are embezzling money, who all of a sudden are domineering and lording over people. Who, like nobody plans on doing those things when they're writing their future they want for themselves. I would like to get caught stealing money and then process that unhealthily and have multiple affairs and then make my whole church question their faith, signed pastor somebody. <laughs> but it happens. People shipwreck their faith. The moment you stop believing that you're vulnerable to attack is the moment that you become the most vulnerable to attack. I took a concealed carries class seven, eight years ago, and they talked about like, hey, when you're carrying a weapon, you have to be on level yellow all the time. There's no more just green. Like if red is like there's imminent danger right now, yellow is there might be danger. Like Christians carrying the word of God, the sword of the spirit, birthing the gospel, we have to be on yellow all the time. And these two guys stop seeing themselves as in a war and it leads to shipwreck of their faith. How vulnerable do you feel if Christmas is warfare, if it makes literally the enemy mad and he's there coming to wage war against you, are you vigilant? Do you see yourself as at risk? I don't think we need to like walk around being chronically anxious about someone coming to get us, like looking for spooks underneath every single uh, rock or wherever it is. But I do think we need to have a mindful awareness of the fact that there is an enemy who would like us to make shipwreck of our faith. And when you have a good advocate, when you have a good mediator, that doesn't need to be cause for chronic fear, but it does lead us to just be vigilant. One of the things I, I feel so like just bummed about every now and then during Christmas is I'm walking around like Target or Walgreens and there's like this 
awesome Christmas music playing that's like fall on your knees, oh, hear the angels' voices, oh, night divine, the Savior was born type stuff. And how many people walking around hearing that go like, this isn't for me. This is for those other people. Like there's like our society as well as our church has this kind of script of a person who you call like a likely convert. Like, oh, that's not for people. That's, that's for people who have, you know, 2.2 kids and live in the suburbs and have their life together. That's people who go to church. There's a script kind of deal. Uh, but there's also this like script of who the church was tempted to believe it would likely be a Christian in the first century. Like one of the, one of the problems that Paul's regularly addressing in his teaching was this belief uh, that crept into the church that Jesus came only to save the Jews. And the Jews at this time were, you know, the, the marginalized, the powerless, uh, the ones without great authority. And so then it kind of, Jesus only came for the poor and the powerless and the Jews, like the outskirts of these people. And Paul's pushing back on it and saying like, no. That's not how it works. Um, here we hear, see Paul talk about this. He says, for I, I, I urge, this is 1 Timothy 2, that prayers, supplications, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for all kings who are in high positions, that we might lead a peaceful, quiet life. He's saying, this is, in Greek, there's uh, two ways to think about the word all. There's all without distinction or all without exception. All without distinction is all kinds Paul goes on to say here, like the Gentiles too, I'm speaking to the Gentiles. He's going, I'm all kinds of people, people in high places, people in low places, people who are kings, people who are not kings, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, man and woman, all kind, God wants all these types of people to be saved. Don't just pray for your fellow Jews to be saved. Don't just pray for the likely convert to be saved. Pray for all these people. And we are tempted this Christmas season, I think, to buy into this idea that there is a likely type of person to become a Christian and there's other people who are less likely. We might have, our list might not be for kings because there tends to not be a lot of people running around calling themselves kings nowadays. Kings who are in high positions. Like, yes, the LDS bishop. Yes, the CEO of your job. Yes, your father who you haven't talked to in 10 years. Yes, your husband. Yes, your spouse. Yes, your kids. Yes, the president of your HOA, they're redeemable. They really are. You know, and we got to understand that like all kinds of people, all types, rich, poor, all ethnicities, powerful, not powerful, like that Christ, the advocate, the mediator is willing to go on behalf of all of these types of people. And Paul's correcting in us this temptation to reduce the types of people that uh, might be entering in the kingdom of God. But there's also another, not just all types of people in terms of like the boxes they check on like income or ethnicity or, or, or position on, the, on like a resume, but also all types of people with different sinful backgrounds. I know that some of you might be even here right now going, I, this, this sounds interesting, but it's not for me because blank. The person who invited me, it's for them. They haven't done what I've done. They haven't seen what I've seen. They haven't been complicit in what I've been complicit in. In 1 John, uh, John writes this, um, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if, and this could also be understood as if and when anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. See, if you had the pressure to advocate for yourself, then we are all just hosed. But all of us 
sin without exception and all of us without distinction are invited and God wants us to be saved and he's loving us and there is no argument to be made that this is not for me. All types. I think this affects our own heart. Some of you like are just resistant to being, to coming to Christ in faith and repentance of going all in on I trust the Lord Jesus because you're going like, it's, maybe it's, I see why it's for other people, but why would God want or need me? I don't think so. It's not really my deal. It's other people's deal. I, I don't have the background. I don't have the information. And Paul's going, stop all types, all kinds. Bring them all, bring them out. Some of us even are like hesitant to tell people about the gospel, to tell people Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, to tell people, hey, I've, I'm repenting and trying to believe. Can, will you repent and try to believe along with me? Come with me on church. No, they wouldn't do it. They're not, that, they're not that type. And Paul's saying all of us, he's correcting us. Christ is an equal opportunity defender. He's like that lawyer with the, the billboard. You know, call me if you want representation. You know, the ambulance chaser type lawyers, you know, like uh, I'll represent anybody if it gets me what I want. You know, that's, that's what Christ is doing. He's like, I'll represent anybody. I think one of the things we have to be repenting of on a regular basis as a church is believing that there is a type of person that is more or less likely to become a Christian, or that there's a type of person that's more or less likely to be sold out for Christ, or there's a type of person that I should be praying for to come to faith. Paul's going, knock it off. Just knock it off. You know, desire is an interesting thing. One of the things it says here in this text is that 1 Timothy 2, 4, praying for all these types of people that they would uh, know Jesus. It is good, it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, this is like, all these types of people. I'm not building a homogenous kingdom. I'm building a, a, a well-diversified portfolio of people. All types of people come on down. The desire, like you think about, like desire is a weird thing for me to think about God having because desires are vulnerable. Right? As soon as you want something, you can be disappointed. Like as soon as I start talking about God having desire, there's this, in the same breath, this possibility of God being disappointed that feels interesting to have this all-powerful, all-sovereign God with the capacity for desire, disappointment, because desires are necessarily unfulfilled, right? Like if, if you're trying to like prevent yourself from being disappointed, just get rid of all desires. That's called Buddhism. Like if you extinguish the flame of desire, then you kind of hit nirvana and you can't be disappointed anymore. But here we have a God who's desiring something, who's wanting something, disappointable, so like my wife uh, is a student mentor. She mentors eighth grade girls on Wednesday nights here. And they had this uh, uh, white elephant exchange Christmas thing, right? Uh, which is always like, what are you going to get for that? And so she came, she, she won this gift at the white elephant Christmas exchange. And it was a can of French onion soup. You know, you know, sometimes these gifts are like, cool. What am I do with that? You know, <laughs> I would never eat anything French onion soup related, period. I don't know what it is. Never taste it. Never will. You know, but like, why is, now it's at my house. I'm storing it. You know, you know, it's absorbing my, my, you know, so save it till next year's white elephant, you know, French onion soup. Right. So there's always that risk though. But I, I think that 
like whenever you're opening a present, there's like, even if you're kind of protecting yourself, like I hope it's something I want, and then it's French onion soup, you know. And I think that a lot of Christians I know feel like you're a can of French onion soup. <laughs> Lord, I repent and believe. And he's like, great. I better have something than nothing, but nothing would have been not as bad as this, you know. <laughs> but that's like versus like the experience of opening a gift and it's actually what you wanted. I was at a different white elephant gift exchange that wasn't with middle schoolers and high schoolers. It was actually like the elders Christmas party. And there's like these like blankets that everyone wanted and they're stealing it from each other. You know, the elders of this church stealing gifts from each other, you know, and everyone wanted these blankets and people were so disappointed because they got the blanket and someone stole it from them. And I was like, nah, you know, the blanket, you know, and there's just a little bit of uh, hurt feelings around the who got to go home with the cashmere, beautiful, cozy blanket, you know, but someone got to go home with it because they wanted it. Because when the question that I have, like, do you think that God feels about you like you're that warm, cozy cashmere blanket, or he feels about you like you're that can of French onion soup? Because here in this text, it says God desires, God wants, God is interested in. Being saved, you being saved, and coming to knowledge of the truth, right? Like I, this is my Christmas. I have a three-year-old now, and it's our first scary Christmas uh, because three-year-olds, at least my three-year-old yet, hasn't really figured out how to lie, and so you give a bad gift, you know, right? You know, like uh, you give gifts to adults, and they're at least like socialized into like niceness like oh thank you oh this would be really great yeah i'll put it no yeah well thank you so you know and so like you never really know did i nail it or not with adults because they're always kind of a little bit managing your emotions whereas a three-year-old doesn't know how to lie yet you know or at least maybe a couple weeks he will but yet right so far hasn't lied yet so it's this scary thing open the gift and if it if he thinks it's trash he's throwing it in the trash like he's like oh yeah cool you know i don't want uh so there's like this feeling of risk. Am I giving you what you want or am I just giving it like tear up money and throw it outside and a bit better use of my time, you know? So, but one of the ways that three-year-olds are more like God than us is that God doesn't lie. When he tells you, I want this, he's serious, I want this. Like this is like the best part of gift giving, I think, is being able to consider a person like what would they want that they maybe don't even know they want? Or what would they want that would bring them joy that they wouldn't buy for themselves? What do they want? And like the, the feeling of like, I know you and I'm giving you what you want. Is it, and like this gift. And we talk a lot about Christmas, about how Jesus is the ultimate gift for us. And I want to say yes and amen, absolutely. And I don't in no way want to minimize the fact that we are sinful people needing saving, but God getting what he wants is you coming to knowledge of saving faith in him. There's lightness in his heart, joy. It says that there's rejoicing in heaven when someone repents and believes. And some of you who have yet to like just really trust in Christ for salvation, you are not giving God what he wants. And you have the ability to warm the Father's heart, to cause rejoicing in heaven, 
to repent and believe in him, to entrust in him as the mediator. See, this is the, this is the core thing about the mediator word is it requires that both parties actually want mediation. If someone's not interested, you don't have a mediator. But here you have Jesus, the one mediator between God and man. And even in calling himself a mediator, he's saying that the father desires mediation. It must be done through the son, but you're included in that. And I hope this Christmas season, as we celebrate this, this semi-indictment thing, is that there's like this sober-mindedness, this big idea here that we actually desperately need God. That the darkness is an indictment are on our ability to advocate for and mediate for ourselves. We actually need God to do it for us. But that he doesn't begrudgingly, like a can of French onion soup, go like, oh, thanks. That he actually really wants us, that we are desired by God and his heart is warmed when we repent and believe. That this is the reality of Christmas. This is the big idea of Christmas, that Jesus Christ, the mediator, acts on our behalf and wants us. And when we repent and believe in him, it warms the Father's heart. Have you ever thought that Christmas is not just for receiving from God, but there's this aspect of reciprocating, of loving back that you get to participate in? And I hope we see how much the Father loves us and how much joy it brings him when we love him back. I hope that some of you would, for the first time very soon, trust in Christ for your salvation and just know that when that happens, the Father will be excited and blessed, and joyful. And there's a gift that only you can give him, and that's your repentance. Let me pray. God, I pray that you would help us believe this, um, that your heart is warm, that, you're, uh, that you celebrate when we repent. God, I ask that you would enable us, some of us for the first time, to really trust in you and stop trying to mediate for ourselves, stop trying to advocate for ourselves, but we trust that on the cross, you once and for all um, um, purchased our salvation, so God, I ask that this Christmas season, as we look towards it and into it, that we'd see the light in the darkness, we'd see it in our hearts, and we'd see it in the world, and that we would worship you because of the gifts you've given us. In your name we pray, amen.